coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. My goal is if we can provide more veterans help in healthcare and prevent more suicides, whoever wants to be involved with it, as long as it's not limiting other involvement, then so be it. People want to are able to make money, but that shouldn't limit people from doing it. And the community access shouldn't be so cost restrictive that the same people who can't have access won't be able to have access. And that's kind of what we're fighting for. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 150 of Passion Struck, recently ranked as one of the five most popular alternative health podcasts in the world. And thank you to each and every one of you who comes back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you missed my interview from earlier in the week, it was with Kathy Heller, who is the host of the popular podcast, The Kathy Heller Show, which has over 30 million downloads, and the author of the book, Don't Keep your day job. And if you missed my episodes from last week, we had on Dr. Michael Slepian, where we launched his new book, The Secret Life of Secrets. And we also had on Dr. Scott Schur, who is one of the foremost experts in the world in hyperbonic oxygen therapy, which can be used to treat neurodegenerative diseases, recovery from cancer, traumatic brain injuries, as well as achieving peak performance. And if you missed my solo episode from last week, it is on why we should concentrate on the journey and not the destination. I wanted to thank you so much for all your ratings and reviews. We now have over 8,000 of them globally on iTunes alone, and they mean so much to helping us keep and grow the popularity of the show. And if you love these episodes, it means so much to us when you forward them to your friends and family members and give them their weekly dose of inspiration. And if you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, we now have over 800,000 views on it, and it has over 300 different videos that you can check out. Just go to John R. Miles and subscribe. Now let's talk about today's guest. Jesse Gould is a pioneer in psychedelic therapies. As a former Army Ranger and founder of the Heroic Hearts Project, he has spearheaded the research and acceptance of Iowatha, psilocybin, ibogaine, and ketamine therapy for military veterans. Jesse's mission is to help military veterans who are suffering from mental trauma and spread awareness of the benefits of psychedelic therapies that can be offered as alternative treatments to pharmaceuticals. Today, we discuss the 4x4x48 challenge that we both recently undertook and the significance of it to both of us. We go into Jesse's experience in the Army and why he discovered the heroic Hearts Project. We go into detail on numerous psychedelics and how they can be used to treat trauma, including MDMA, psilocybin, ayahuatha, as well as ketamine. Why the federal health system is failing those who suffer from PTSD, the reasons that Big Pharma has worked against these modalities, and the stage two and three trials that are currently underway, as well as legislation to formally approve its use and so much more. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. So ecstatic 
to welcome Jesse Gold to the Passion Struck podcast. So good to see you again, Jesse. John, great to see you. It seems like almost yesterday. That was, <laughs> was a great event that we met at. Well, a lot of times listeners ask me, how do you find your guests? And most of the time I would say it was through networking. But in our case, we met under completely different circumstances where we both did the four by four by 48 challenge. And maybe if a listener isn't familiar with that, you could tell them what the challenge is and we can talk through some of what happened. Yeah. So I believe it was originally uh, created by David Goggins, who's a military influencer. So it's four miles every four hours for 48 hours. So it's a total of 48 miles over the course of two days. So on the point of every four mile, every four hours, everybody gets up even at 2 a.m. And, and runs this. And so it was uh, another veteran organization run by Andrew Marr called Warrior Angel Foundation. He has a ranch outside of Houston. And just from our conversations, he wanted to get a few different organizations that are all in the space of providing uh, a voice for veterans, providing mental health for veterans, get us together, get the community together, do this sort of crazy event together, possibly bring in some funds, but really the conversation. And like I said, the community was the big piece of it. It's interesting. Over the weekend, we had an event for aspiring high school students who might want to go to the Naval Academy. And while I was there, I ran into uh, Admiral Buchanan, who was the former commandant and midshipman. And I told him I had just done the 4x4x48. And he said, man, that was one of the worst weekends of my life when I did that. And he goes, what was yours like? And I said, well, it took on a couple additional dimensions because one, I wasn't doing it alone. I was doing it with a bunch of former special forces veterans uh, from both Canada and the US. But I said to make it even more difficult, they decided that we would sleep in tents, have Native Americans attend who would beat drums until four o'clock in the morning. And on top of that, drink bone broth. <laughs> he was just like, what in the world were you guys thinking? I thought it was such a special event. And for me, it really opened up for me a much better understanding, not only about what we're going to talk about with you today, about your foundation, Heroic Hearts Project, and what you're doing to help veterans with PTSD, but also Native American culture, which I thought made it um, an interesting twist because they are very aware of psychedelic drugs from their centuries old culture of uh, using peyote and other things. How did you find that experience? (laughs) It was, it was amazing. It's my body always at first struggles, but then uh, remembers of, of going through the suck. And so it's almost like a nostalgic feeling when, when I'm not sleeping and my bones and my muscles are aching. But having the Native American elders just really added a very unique and beautiful element to it. And these were very notable, uh, like Chief Lane, who's well known and part of many great associations. There's obviously been contentions in the past between the settlers in the U.S. and the natives and continuing issues there. But we're at a point now where we're we're all just trying to heal our communities and get past certain mental health blocks, and it's universal. And so we had just a lot of conversations there about, you know, everybody that was there had this warrior spirit. We're all united by that same sort of spirit. And so can we just find a way to uh, work with that and, and bond on that besides our differences and, and different ethnicities and, and backgrounds and what can we bring us together and work towards our the help of our people. And so having that and then just having them bring their ceremonies and song and dance and everything like that was just an amazing thing. It just really added to the, the, whole, the whole package of what that weekend was. It never fails to amaze me that the more veterans I speak to, especially those who served in combat, 
the more I see that we all have overlapping symptoms. And in yeah. most cases, about 90% overlapping. So to me, it's also a great vindication that the things that we're going through aren't isolated to just us, which I think if any veteran is, or first responder, et cetera, is listening to this, that they understand as these things are so much more common than you and your isolation may think they are. So I thought it would be a good place to go into. You can use this as a way to introduce your military service. Why did you end up going down this path of looking at psychedelics? And then how did you create the Heroic Hearts Project? Yeah, absolutely. So my path as relates to this. I've, I've had a many, many different hats, many different lives. But um, after college and after working in finance a little bit, I joined the military. I was an army ranger at 1st Battalion and had multiple deployments to Afghanistan. I, uh, I went in and enlisted. So I was a non-commissioned officer, ended up being a, a section leader. So in charge of many individuals. Um, and overall, I had a, had a great military experience, learned a lot about myself and, and leadership. When I got out the wear and tear of that military life and being in that situation and, and what it does to you both psychologically and, and physically, I started feeling those sort of subconscious wounds, those mental health issues. And as much as I try to ignore it, as much as I try to just push past it, it just kept showing its head and really starting to affect my life in a negative way. So I found myself, I was in Tampa, Florida at the time and having on the outside, all sorts of great stuff, great job, great community. But on the inside, I was just being torn up and it's really making bad decisions and, and unhealthy decisions that I had these red flags that I knew if I kept on that path, it, it, it probably wouldn't end well for me. And so I try to pursue health, uh, mental health. I try to change my life. I try to drink less. Certain things helped. Certain things were a little bit insurmountable given depression, anxiety, and all that that I was going through. And I went to the VA and unfortunately the VA was very much just sort of a quick check of what was going on and then a fast track to, to whatever medications that was, was currently in vogue. And, and, and it was more of a maintenance program than, than any sort of healing or understanding what was actually going on under the, behind the scenes. And so I just found myself in a spot where I was struggling and suffering. I didn't really know why, but also the professionals didn't know why. And uh, so I didn't know what to do, but it, it was just getting worse. Like I was getting more and more sad and depressed towards the end. And it, it was just kind of, I didn't really care. You know, I wasn't suicidal, but I didn't care at a certain point of, of if I put myself in a risky situation, if something happened, then something happened. Around that time, I heard about psychedelics. The one I heard about was ayahuasca and I had never done psychedelics, never had an interest, didn't self-identify. I had the same notions as, as a lot of people. This person does psychedelics, they're doing a drug. They're doing it recreationally. They're doing it to escape. They're doing it to get high. There's no mental health benefit there. It's just sort of this weird false, false profundity. Uh, but like I said, I was suffering. And I heard some of these stories of people actually going uh, to the jungle or, or taking psychedelics and having pretty pretty big changes, pretty big shifts in, in their mentality and, and uh, overcoming certain mental health hurdles. And so, you know, I had nothing to lose at that point. And I decided to give it a shot, did more research, felt more comfortable, and eventually went to Peru and went through these, these ceremonies. And it was over the course of the week, four uh, indigenous ceremonies using this ayahuasca. And it was very challenging, but just very profound and very healing to a point where after that, the continued healing that I saw from it, the being able to overcome a lot of the issues and seeing my life in a different way, led me to found Heroic Hearts Project to educate and then also connect other veterans that are in similar spots to these exact modalities, not pushing it on anybody, 
but the just in my own community there's so many that had taken their life or actively taken their life and we're kind of at that same spot they've tried everything else and nothing was working and so it was really for that group and it's since expanded just because the mental health um pandemic in the veteran community and and even more so is, is so severe right now everybody's just looking for answers I think that that's a really good call out just to mention suicide prevention, because I saw in some of the articles that you appeared in that they were citing that during the 20 year war on terror, that there were 30 to 40,000 suicides. And I actually interviewed a classmate of mine, Chuck Smith, who's a former Marine. And he did a TED talk on this, which has gotten millions of views and TED won't let you put out information unless they validate it. And the number he came up with was closer to 145,000, which they independently validated, which to me was just shocking when you compare that to the roughly five to 6,000 who died in combat. And then right. you look at this on a worldwide level, and there are over 800,000 people a year who are taking their life due to suicide. So it really is something that affects not only veterans, but many different communities around the world which is only getting worse given the two years we've just had. So for you, when you went through this experience, I guess one of the questions that would come to my mind is, was it short lasting and did you have to do it again? Or once you went through those four treatments, did it have a long lasting profound impact? Yeah. So everybody's, this question is pretty common. It should be just because it's, it's our understanding of how it works and especially it's different from sort of the Western tradition that we're used to, where you take medications on a monthly basis, some things like Tylenol, you take it, cures your headache until you have another headache. So psychedelics kind of works differently with the mental health uh, side of things. So for me, and for most people, when they have these big experiences over the course of that week, no matter what, they're going to have lasting changes. They're going to have lasting perceptions of themselves and understandings. Uh, a lot of them are able to overcome, you know, hypervigilance or depression or anxiety, and it won't come back or it won't come back as severe as it had before. But trauma is complex and we all process trauma uh, differently. So some of us have many layers of trauma. A lot of veterans have, you know, there's, there's a correlation between those that suffer with PTSD and childhood trauma. And so that can be deeper and trickier levels. So there are people who commonly do come back to it, uh, but again, it's a different relationship. That's one of the things we teach with Heroic Hearts is that if you are going to go to one of these bigger experiences with psilocybin, mushrooms, ayahuasca, ibogaine, you want to give yourself time. So go into it with intention and preparation. We do about a month and a half of individual coaching, preparation, getting people the right mindset, breath work, mindfulness activities going into it. The actual retreat, you want to make sure that the retreat centers themselves or they know what they're doing. They have a history of, of doing this. They're safe. They have safety protocols. Uh, they have specific protocols specifically for different types of trauma. And then the after side. And the after side is what we call integration. So generally speaking, uh, with these psychedelic experiences, it really sort of gives you a brand new perspective on yourself. For a lot of people, it almost zooms them out. So they see their life in third person. So they can see all these negative patterns and cycles and where this trauma comes from helps them process it but it's a lot to download and there's a lot of understandings of like hey i've let myself go i need to get back into shape i need to eat healthier i need to treat my spouse better but they a person still has individual responsibility to incorporate that into their life 
So that's the integration phase. What did you just download? What experiences did you have? What profundity did are you taking home? And how do you effectively incorporate that into your life to actually enact change? That way you create these structures at home that keep you on the right path, that support your mental health. If you go straight back to the bar right after this, even though you're not going to be inclined to, but if you went to that and you went party with friends, obviously the, the, the benefit's not going to take hold because you're going right back into your old patterns. With psychedelics, there is a proven dynamic that increases brain plasticity, so connections, which allows you to overwrite negative uh, sort of behaviors and rewrite new positive behaviors, but you still have to enforce those. You still have to do that. So that being said, the integration, after a big experience, we want people to sit with that for six months to a year, because even six months later, they're still like understanding their new sort of perception, their new sort of way of interacting with the world and how these sort of this was working with them if, if there's deeper levels. For those that have more trauma, then oftentimes they do go back, but then they're going back with intention. They're going back to resolve other issues or deeper issues. So again, it's kind of more of a learning yourself, connecting to yourself, connecting your trauma, as opposed to having the same exact issue and then just medicating that and repeat the cycle. So it's sort of, we have to change our perspective of it. It's really, there, there's always progress there if you do it correctly. Um, and but for each person, it's going to be different. Each person has, like I said, process of trauma is different and have different interactions with it in their life. Right now, there are two forms of psychedelics that are going through stage three trials, as I understand it. One is MDMA, which is ecstasy. And the other is psilocybin, which comes from magic mushrooms. Do I have that correct? Yeah, I think psilocybin is still in phase two, but it'll get it'll get to phase three uh, pretty recently. But yeah, MDMA uh, is set if it follows the same course to be prescribable by therapists in um, probably mid year March uh, twenty twenty three, and then psilocybin we're expecting to be uh, uh, prescribable for depression right now. That's the one that they're testing for in twenty two thousand twenty four two thousand twenty five. Okay. And I also read that there's several states that these are now legal to use. Each state has its own laws and each state has a, the right to do it. Federally, these substances, MDMA, psychedelics, and cannabis are all still schedule one substances. So they're the most controlled and federally legal. So that's why federally, um, you know, cannabis is still having issue in terms of monetary exchange. The VA can't prescribe it, all this kind of stuff. Same thing with, with a lot of these, but on a state-by-state -state basis, obviously we know there's medical cannabis similar with psychedelics. So there's no state right now where, correction, so most states are decriminalized. That means if you have a personal possession, or not most states, but a few states uh, are decriminalized with psilocybin and some other psychedelics. So for instance, if you go to Denver or you go to, uh, it's kind of more on a city basis right now, uh, but we're, we're working on a decriminalization in California. But in these cities like Denver, like Washington, D.C., if you have a personal possession of psilocybin or other substances, uh, psychedelics, not not like meth or anything like that, uh, then you won't the, it's, the police won't arrest you. They won't charge you anything like that. So it's just you can have your personal dose uh, bills like California, which is still in progress. It would allow personal possession, but then also community access. So if you go to a community group where people are doing like a psilocybin ceremony, then they'll be able to have that in a little bit bigger dosage. The one um, exception is Oregon, which passed Measure 109 um, uh, the other year, uh, not last year, but the year before. 
And that's actually allowing a prescribable model as well as a community model of just psilocybin, just mushrooms. So by the end of this year, they're still trying to figure out, you should be able to go to a therapist in Oregon and uh, get prescribed or get have access to psilocybin for the sake of a mental health issue or just for the sake of um, some sort of you know, reaffirmation of, of life or, or something to explore. You'll also be able to access it from a community. So there'll be community centers. There's going to be licensing to control safety and quality and all that kind of stuff for the centers and for the practitioners, uh, but it's just different models. And for people who are hesitant about the, this community side, the reason why this has been a big effort is because most of these psychedelics have a long history of being used in communal settings. Oftentimes the protocols that we use in medical models have been preserved by indigenous communities, by sacraments, by tribes, all this kind of stuff. So there's a much longer history actually of using psychedelics in this setting than there is actually in a medicinal setting. You mentioned before sort of these peyote circles, it's the exact same sort of thing where native uh, Americans use peyote as a sacrament. There's a lot of uh, tribes in Mexico and also in the US that have used psilocybin mushrooms as sacrament. Ayahuasca is big in South America. So that's kind of why we're, we're allowing for that. So it's just not taking control and changing it to something that it's not. We will be right back to my interview with Jesse Gould. Oprah Winfrey, she's living, breathing proof of the power of passion, running away from home at age 13, starting a media empire, and now worth $2.6 billion. All to say that when she makes a big move, you can learn a lot by watching. And after she made $60 million in one fell swoop, I did some research on how, and my eyes were opened to a market out there worth $1.7 billion that for the first time, we all can be part of. No Oprah-level billions needed. How? There's a startup that's blowing the whole thing wide open called Masterworks. Powered by passion, like all good startups are, and eager to change the world. To learn more, go to masterworks.io and use promo code PASSION. That's masterworks.io, promo code PASSION. See important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. That's masterworks.io, promo code PASSION. And we know all these promo codes can be so difficult to remember. So we put them in one convenient place on passionstruck.com slash deals. Thank you so much for supporting the sponsors who support this show and make it free for our listeners everywhere. Now, back to my interview with Jesse Gould. Some of the studies I was researching are pretty astounding. I saw one that came out from the National Institute of Health that showed that the MDMA intervention is having almost a 66 to 67% success rate in helping the recipients with PTSD symptoms. It's pretty astounding results. Yeah, absolutely. For those MDMA results, that's a huge jump. And you generally don't see that in FDA trials. Currently accepted treatment is talk therapy with SSRIs, which in terms of getting over PTSD has less than a one in three success rate. So less than 33%. Whereas with this MDMA trials, and this is third stage trials, as tight as you can get a trial, and it's passed through everything else, 67%. That's more of a double jump uh, to get there, which is a huge thing in, in any sort of mental health or any sort of health dynamic. And the other thing with the MDMA trials, they're working with patients with treatment resistant PTSD. So traditionally, these are the hardest. These are the ones that have already gone through other types of treatment. 
and just had to no avail. So these are the hardest cases and it's still having that huge success rate. I'm sure a lot of your audience is still like they hear psychedelics that have that same sort of hesitation stigma. And that's understandable. You know, it has a, its own sort of sorted past, but this is not a question of if this is going to happen. It's just a question of when the medical establishment for the most part is already warming up and already accepting in some circles that psychedelics are going to be a pretty big part of future mental health. So now is a question of how do we integrate this into medical systems and the community systems and how do we have proper support to make sure that it's safe? So, um, you know, I know I understand that people are afraid of this and they have sort of that fear-based kind of stuff of, oh, psychedelics are just going to go throughout our community and all that kind of stuff. That's not the case. There's been proven areas where that doesn't happen. But on the other side, we are seeing some amazing healing that we've never seen before coming from psychedelics for mental health. And so as long as we progress forward and have an open mind about it, this is already happening. The former director of NIH already acknowledged that psychedelics are going to be a big part of, of mental health. Uh, major universities like Johns Hopkins uh, already has a psychedelic center. We're working with University of Texas, Austin. So in Texas, Texas passed a, a psychedelic bill. The University of Texas, Austin, Dell Medical School has a psychedelic center. Stanford University, Yale, you can name it. They're, they are all, and the top researchers are all acknowledging that we're seeing some amazing results from psychedelics. So it's just a question of like, okay, let's change our understanding of what we think we know and let's see how we can effectively and safely incorporate these into sort of our modern ways of treating people. Why is Big Pharma doing everything they can to block its adoption? So it's changing now. Big Pharma, it's like any, it's economic incentive. The reason why there's only now been research. So for people who don't understand the, the progression, because these are Schedule One substances, it's the tightest restrictions. And that within certain funding bills, federal funding bills, it also prevented any sort of research funding into Schedule One substances. And it also put a stigma on a lot of universities that would be able to study it. So for the past 50, 60 years, there's been absolutely no research into psychedelics just because one, there's no money. And two, there's this huge stigma that you'd lose other uh, funding and research if you went into it. So it was just pretty much black labeled. But generally speaking, if there is money to be made, then companies will push past it and change laws and change legislation. The hard part with psychedelics is that most of them are open source. You can grow mushrooms in the ground. And if they're that effective, then that's not a good economic model. Unfortunately, that's the case. Uh, the reason why it's shifted is that somebody did find a way to make money off of psilocybin in terms of patenting a certain synthetic process, which will probably be used for the medical model. So now that there's money to be made, it's sort of shifting the dynamic that it has the incentive to do it. And it makes sense. Pfizer's not going to spend $100 million on getting a substance through the FDA trials when they can't make money off of it. That's just a losing bid. And so that's sort of the, the shift of it. So originally, psych pharmaceutical or big pharma was doing that because one, it's a direct competitor to their SSRIs, SNRIs. But two, there was just no way for them to exploit it, make money off of it. You're going to see sort of a shift in that. And that's already kind of happening as they understand different ways of incorporating this and making money. For instance, you see kind of the same sort of trend with, with vape. We, we kind of think vape pens and all that kind of stuff are replacing cigarettes, but it's Philip Morris and it's all these companies that are actually behind the scenes that have all the patents that are still making the money. So the, the same big players are probably going to stay to be the same, the same big players. They just have to figure out how to make it into their economic model. Yeah, it's just a different delivery vehicle. 
for the yeah. same stuff that they were doing before. Well, but at the end of the day, as long as my goal is if we can provide more veterans help and, and health care and prevent more suicides, then whoever wants to be involved with it, as long as it's not limiting other involvement, then so be it. People want to are able to make money, but that shouldn't limit people from doing it in a community access. It shouldn't limit, shouldn't be so cost restrictive that the same people who can't have access won't be able to have access. And that's kind of what we're fighting for is that we don't want this to turn into something that is just making people a ton of money, but then the same communities that, that aren't getting a, a benefit from it will continue not to. We're trying to change that paradigm to where people have more access to actually effective tools as opposed to just access to mediocre and subpar tools. Okay. So maybe we'll talk about each one of these protocols. And my understanding with MDMA, and correct me if I'm wrong, for the listener who's sitting there, how would you prescribe ecstasy? My, my understanding, it's a three-time treatment. The dosage has very much been studied and regulated on what they're giving the participant, and then they are closely monitored by medical staff. That's pretty accurate. And so right now, it's uh, in terms of the MDMA trials for PTSD, because it's going through clinical trials, it has to be very strict in terms of the protocol, in terms of the dosage, in terms of everything that's done. It has to be by the book, and that's what they get approved for. Once it does get um, passes the FDA and, and becomes prescribable by therapists, there'll be a little bit more leeway and a little bit more opening up in terms of like protocols. But for the by the book, they have two people at a time while the person's going through the MDMA. Like you said, they take a certain dosage that they find to be effective. And then they do uh, like therapy, talk therapy around it. And so the reason why MDMA can be effective, I know we all think it ecstasy and this kind of stuff. With that, there is this kind of, the reason why people take it during parties because it makes them feel good and sensory is on high and all this kind of stuff. But they're not really like thinking, they're not in a spot where they're focused on inner stuff, they're distracted. The difference with this is MDMA is a heart opener. It does break down walls. It does build trust naturally. And so it actually augments the job of the therapist. One of the hardest things for a talk therapist, one is building a rapport, building a bond, building trust with their client, and then getting deeper because we build these walls to protect ourselves. And so with these substances like MDMA, one, it makes them feel good, um, but two, it, it builds that trust and it breaks down those previous restrictors. So the therapist is able to get deeper and deeper and they're quicker able to establish that trusting relationship. So that's why we've seen it to be most effective because these veterans, especially that are so good at compartmentalizing are now opening up and now able to feel emotions and talk about what is really driving sort of the PTSD symptoms and some other things. How is the psilocybin administered? It depends on the different trials and it depends on, on where, it's, where it's happening. If you have like the Johns Hopkins trial, they, they've done a, a couple. Uh, and for like the depression, they'll have a specific dosage. Uh, you'll go in, the, the person will put on like blind, like uh, eye shades. They'll take a certain dosage of psilocybin. They'll generally have like music playing in the background because the music kind of helps drive the, the experience. And then the with the hallucinogenics, the therapy tends to happen internally on its own because it brings up to the surface trauma naturally. And so then afterwards, the therapist will talk with the individual about, okay, what came up, what feelings came up, and then help them process it because it can be kind of metaphorical or almost like a dreamlike state. Sometimes it can be very precise. So whatever comes up, they'll talk with the therapist and help process. 
but a lot of the work is actually done internally with the the psychedelic itself uh, with the, the hallucinogen if you're doing it in a more traditional setting this comes back to like mexico oftentimes it'll be week to or fewer days you'll go into sort of a traditional ceremony there'll be preparation generally a fire ceremony um, you'll go in, you'll have your mushrooms, and then you'll just kind of be in your spot. And again, it's a very internal sort of experience. But on the outside, it'll be music and led by the healer, either live or, or a recording. If you're with a group, then you'll have more of a group therapy dynamic. I also understand we haven't talked about it yet, but there's also uh, ketamine, which I understand one of the modalities is a nasal spray. So yeah, so on that list uh, that, that are more popular today are, are ketamine, uh, ibogaine, and ayahuasca. LSD too, it has been shown to be um, effective for therapy, but because it's synthetic, it's, it's a little bit trickier and it has a lot more baggage for obvious reasons. So ketamine is interesting because it's actually a schedule three drug, whereas all the other ones are schedule one. It's schedule three because originally it's been approved uh, medically for use because it's a dissociative anesthetic. So they use it in military, they used it for sort of a, a pain reliever or after severe physical trauma, people under a big ketamine dose, they'll kind of dissociate by the time so the, that they can do all the surgeries and get them back to a good state. So it already had that sort of dynamic where it was used medically and, and pretty common, but it, it's only in the past, I'd say 10 to 20 years where it's really caught on as a helpful for, for mental health issues. And so because it's schedule three, that allows people to use it because sort of the medical model, even though it's approved for this, you can, if it's somewhat related, use it for other medical purposes. And so if you've seen in the last five years, ketamine clinics have really sprouted out, sprouted up all over um, the U.S. and you're actually able to do it legally in the U.S. In, in a clinical medical setting. It's a little bit of a wild west and there's a few different protocols of, of where they're doing. Some I don't agree with, some I think are, are very beneficial, uh, but essentially at its core, what happens when you are at a certain dosage of ketamine, there's two main things that happen in a very simplistic basis. So one, the, the reason why people have found ketamine to be effective is because there's this chemical benefit. So for about 70% of people, mid 70% of people, if they take ketamine administered dosage, it can have an immediate antidepressive effect, an immediate anti-suicidation effect. So people who are actively suicidal, oftentimes can go get ketamine dose administered and they'll be like, it'll relieve their depression or relieve their suicidal uh, thoughts. And then that will last about three to four months. So that's a huge benefit because there's nothing else that, that works that effective. And like I said, it's about 70 to 75% of, of people have that. The other side of it is at a certain dosage, uh, ketamine in that dissociative state almost has a somewhat psychedelic dynamic. So in certain dosages, when you take that much, and you have music going on, the same kind of thing, eye shades, you'll actually go into a almost psychedelic experience where the, you'll see stuff. Sometimes you'll feel stuff, trauma will come up on the surface. So for that's called ketamine assisted psychotherapy, where you have psychotherapists that are trained in that modality, they can put people in that specific dosage. And the same sort of thing as what happens with the MDMA or psilocybin, these traumas come up, they see it, they, they interact with it. And then the therapist can use that to augment their, their practice. These things that might take them years to get to can happen in a matter of sessions. Um, and so that generally happens in sort of either the IV or intramuscular. Those are different types of injecting it. The Again, we're getting back to the economic. There is the nasal spray. 
Uh, the reason why ketamine wasn't catching on originally because it's it's open label, so it's it's very cheap. It's but it's if you just buy ketamine, uh, like if doctors buy ketamine, it's super cheap because it's not patentable. Uh, but uh, Spravato, Johnson Johnson were able to patent a certain um, chemical change of ketamine called S-ketamine, and then they made Spravato, which is a nasal spray. And because they're able to do that, even though it's it functions essentially the same chemically, it's very very similar, um, they're able to make money off of it and charge a lot more for it. And so that was the driving factor. So the nasal spray, it's going to be a lighter dosage. And so it tends to use kind of more of that chemical benefit as opposed to the ketamine assisted psychotherapy benefit. So that's what's being used within the VA, this nasal spray, where it will get people to a somewhat um, sort of dissociated state, but not to the same levels. And so again, it can be beneficial in terms of that chemical benefit. And it can kind of, with the, with the dissociation, help out a little bit with the, the psychotherapy. But in my mind, um, and from what I've seen, I don't think it's as effective as if you were to use the proper dosages with intramuscular or intravenous and sometimes lozenges. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities from scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now back to passionstruck. I just wanted to describe an experience. One of the participants I was talking to at the four by four by 48 challenge went down to Central America to do ayahuasca. And that experience was very normal and opened up for him kind of a feeling of comfort. But then he was also given something else that caused a much more potent reaction that lasted for about 15 minutes. And I can't remember what that was, but he said that really triggered for him to remember extreme traumatic situations, which he was, he then processed through for that 15 minutes. So what's the difference? Ayahuasca comes from the Amazonian region. It's essentially the combination of two plants at its most simplistic form. One is a vine called ayahuasca and one's generally a leaf called chacruna. And when you, you um, brew it together, it causes this very thick drink that is ayahuasca and it has a psychedelic property. The main uh, psychoactive component of, of ayahuasca is called DMT. And DMT is the, the psychedelic. DMT comes in many different plants and often animals as well. 
And so you can actually synthesize it. And so you can have it in a smokable form. Uh, and then there's other types of DMT. So the one he was referring to is one called 5-MeO-DMT. So a slightly different chemical structure, but still the base DMT. If I'm not mistaken, dimethyltryptamine. So it's part of the tryptamine family. Um, and so the 5-MeO-DMT actually comes, it comes from plants, but it can also come from the Sonoran Desert Toad. So the Sonoran Desert Toad actually has these ex excretions. Somehow somebody figured out that if you take these excretions, dry it out and smoke it, then you have this ex intense psychedelic experience. And so because they're chemically different, they're similar, but they're also different experiences. 5-MeO-DMT has become rather popular because a lot of people uh, sort of refer to it as the God particle. When you smoke that or, or when, you, when you intake it in whatever form, it has, like he said, a rocket ship. The whole experience lasts 15, 20 minutes. Uh, oftentimes it can just be sort of a mess of, of stuff. Uh, but the 5-MeO in particular tends to more often have bringing people with these feelings of connectedness, love, uh, feeling love with inside themselves, feeling connected to the source. Many have religious experiences. Um, and so it can be a very intense sort of thing, which is good for certain people because it causes that breakthrough, like especially for veterans who have become so um, closed off to themselves that they don't feel anymore. They don't feel happiness. They don't feel anger. They don't feel anything. And so something like this, which is such an intense experience can break them through and sort of bring back that love, bring back that ability to feel and bring back that connectivity to life in general, which they've lost from their, their service. So the difference with that DMT by itself will, will be people have, have had benefit from it, but it doesn't as always have that same like loves kind of stuff. It can, but not to the, the same um, regularity as that one. Um, and again, it's sort of this quick download of and rocket ship of, of information uh, ayahuasca, the difference in that, because you ingest it, the experiences last about four to five hours. So it's not as intense as a smokable version, but you're still in this DMT world, which has a very unique feeling. Each psychedelic has its own chemical thing that causes the, the psychedelic. They're all similar in some ways, but they all have very different feelings. So the DMT and ayahuasca, when you're in that, you're almost in the DMT world. And for four or five hours, which you can't really tell time, but it allows you to process it more, which is why I prefer it for people who are especially new to this, because there's benefit to that quick sort of thing, like I said, breaking down walls, but the real long lasting benefit for especially new people to it is being able to be in this space and having trauma come up, being able to identify it, being able to sort of reframe it in their mind and being able to see themselves in different ways, all things that these longer experiences like ayahuasca or psilocybin journey offer. It's that time being able to process it and then also reframing is really the big benefit. Sometimes people add different ones, but that's why we really like the ayahuasca, but we have used other tools depending on where the person's at. And again, we have to kind of get out of that mentality of like, you have depression, you have this, therefore this is the only thing that you should take. What we sort of go about is understanding more where the person's coming from, a much more holistic version of John, you are here. This is your trauma. This is what you're struggling from. This is how you're feeling right now. This is all other life considerations. You have a family, do you have the support system, all this other kind of stuff. When we have that information, we can better assess what might be the next step for you. And it's not going to be a black or white thing. There could be a few different options and then it's which whatever one you're more drawn to because they can all be beneficial. Uh, but we, we try to get away from that. Like you are depressed, therefore psilocybin is the only answer. It's more, it's a lot more different uh, understandings of what tool is best for you at that moment. 
Yeah, and one of the interesting things for me is I looked at lots of research on psilocybin and ayahuasca. There was basically no physical long-term side effect from it. In fact, finding people who've even overdosed is extremely rare if non-existent because you're far more to stumble upon a poisonous mushroom than you are to to have a side effect from the, the magic mushrooms. But one of the things it did say is that some people can have persistent distressing alterations in how they see the world. How often do you think that side effect occurs and is it fairly rare? So you make a, a good point. There's no magic pill in this game and there, there's there's always risk with anything you do, right? There, even like Tylenol, if you look at statistics of how many people overdose on Tylenol, they're, 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 they're actually out there. Um, but the benefit is in terms of the cost-benefit analysis of, like you said, things like psilocybin and ayahuasca, it's, it's virtually impossible to overdose. I don't think they've even actually experienced it. Uh, and there's no addictive properties. It's not like you take this and you have to do it. Actually, it's, it's counter to that because anybody who's gone through one of these experiences, the last thing they want to do is another ayahuasca experience because it's challenging. It's physically and mentally demanding. Um, and so they might go back, but generally begrudgingly of like, oh man, I have to go through this again, which is a great sort of thing. It's one of those things that help you overcome stuff that you're not addicted or you're not wanting to do it every single day. Um, but beyond that, the, there's other considerations with, with most of these psychedelics. You, wanna, you can't be on certain medications, so that's a risk. If you have, if you have health issues like heart conditions or just had major surgery, you, this is probably not the best step because it can add a lot of stress to your system. So there are those cases, um, in terms of the mental psyche, a lot of times it's been overblown. Um, and that's kind of a lot of the propaganda against psychedelics. I remember growing up and there's always that, uh, the, the, the rumor of like, somebody had a friend of a friend who took too much acid and they turned into a glass of orange juice and were always afraid that somebody would pour them over. Or I remember as a kid, it was like, if you took acid four times, they would clinically call you insane or you'd be clinically insane or something. All these are urban legends that have been promoted by propaganda. So that's not to say it's without risk. Like there is cases of people really having traumatic events. There are cases of people freaking out on it, but never to the spot where they're going to die or anything like that. And you can vastly, vastly minimize that with proper intention, proper preparation, and vetting the people appropriately. Uh, if you do those things, then the risk is, is extremely, extremely low. Anytime people bring up bad trips, there's always a commonality in terms of they weren't prepared, they didn't control their setting, they had all sorts of chaos or at a, a concert or they're with other people that didn't know what they're doing, they didn't have any trained people who could help them out, all these things that, that could add sort of this, these chaotic factors. And so when they get into it and they start like having a really hard time, and there's nobody to calm them down, then they just get all hyped up. And once you get up to that state, it gets harder and harder. And so then they'll go to a hospital until it, it comes out of their system. And then they might experience that as, as a very traumatizing event because they didn't have control. But if you have these situations like what we do with Heroic Hearts Project, where we have that preparation where people get in that right mind frame, we do, um, we do an intake. So we make sure that people are proper, appropriately healthy and they know what they're getting into. And then at the place, when anytime you see the ceremonies, it's quiet be, besides the music, people are in control. They have their little like corner. And then there's people who aren't taking the substances that can help them. If they're having a really hard time, just go over there, remind them to breathe, hold their hand. If they need that, remind them that it's just the experience. 
And we've never had what I'd call a bad trip. We've had very challenging trips. We've had veterans who have been deployed 15 times and they will say that this is the hardest thing they've ever done. But within that hardship, they were able to actually overcome a lot of trauma. We're extremely glad of having gone through that with all that kind of stuff. So we can't mix challenging with a bad trip if people go in with the right intentions. So in terms of what you're saying, there is some risk of a very small risk, like I said, of, of people who do report that stays with them or or lasting hallucinations. Again, I think you can take that out with, with proper dosage and, and with proper vetting. So we don't work with people with history of mental illness. We don't work with um, people who have family histories of psychosis uh, or schizophrenia. We generally don't use synthetic ones like LSD just because there's a natural sort of limitation of, of the dosage with psilocybin, like natural mushrooms and ayahuasca. And I think if you get to like those huge, huge doses of LSD, which you can only really do with a synthetic, then that it's still early stage. I don't think that's necessarily that great for you. Uh, but otherwise, like I said, through the hundreds of vets that we've worked with, with all this proper preparation and protocol, we really haven't had what we would call like somebody either re-traumatize or, or a bad experience. Virtually everybody uh, has had at least some sort of positive input from it, the degree to which varies person to person. And some there's occasional person that because of the way their brain's wired, they just don't really have a psychedelic effect. And so they, they kind of walk away. They still tend to be better, but they don't have as profound as other people. But we've never had people that walk away that are just like, oh, this ruined my life. On those same lines, given you have gone through this treatment, how has it allowed you to personally move on from the trauma that you experienced? I think that was another one of those lessons from this weekend is we're all veterans. We all have our history. It's always part of you. It's always your trauma is, is what develops you and makes you who you are. And that's always going to be with you. You're not going to forget that kind of stuff. But it, the question is more of how big of a effect does it have on your life? How big of an impact? How much does it affect your day-to-day -day and your emotional well-being? So the thing with this process and myself included is that those things are still there and I still have to be diligent on a day-to-day -day basis. I put rules in my life to where I don't drink too much, to where I only will drink with friends and, and social settings and stuff like that. I generally don't buy six packs at home, so I don't go down into that, that, that hole where I'm just drinking all the time. And then other stuff, like I, if I'm feeling anxious, then I'll avoid sort of crowds. So there's certain things that are always there. There's certain things that get better. But it's really our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of the trauma that allows us to be better adaptable on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's really what most people come away with is they see their trauma, they're able to store it in a different way in their brain to where it's not as overwhelming to them and uh, just make positive life changes that it's not holding them down. So for me, yeah, I mean, there, there's like hypervigilance that definitely helped out and resolve that. Other things, I'm just more conscientious of things that used to really make me anxious or depressed. And if I get in that spot, just allow it to happen or avoid those situations. Um, and so I'm much better in terms of self-awareness and emotional awareness than I was before. If you're a veteran and you're facing many different problems that you need to work on around this area, how do you help identify the prioritization of what they should do first? I think it's the, the first thing they should do is just uh, take the time to, to dive into what they're feeling, whether through journaling or meditation or just taking 10 minutes every morning and just explore that. If they're feeling angry, if they're feeling sad, just sitting with the emotion is the first step to helping. 
uh, emotional intelligence and, and, and touching to your sort of intuition or what the trauma is coming up, it takes years to sort of develop and, and gain that. Psychedelics can really help. And that's often what happens. People go in, we train them to go in with intentions. When they go into the psychedelic experience, it could show them something vastly different or some other trauma that they didn't even know was there. Then it's uh, reevaluating. This is something I need to work on now. This is what I was shown. Uh, so let me focus on that and then sort of reassess. And the more you go into that, the more in tune that you are with what you're expressing and what emotions are telling you. Because emotions are messengers. They're all signals. There's a reason that you're feeling anxious. There's a reason you're feeling sad. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to perceive, especially for people who have high anxiety. It might not be attached to something specific, but more of a lifestyle, like existential kind of thing. But the more you understand where all these things are coming from, then the better it is. So people who don't know, and they're just like, I, I just feel bad. Uh, just start sitting with yourself and then look into some of these, these techniques. Cognitive behavioral therapy can help sort of reframe your mind. If you're interested in psychedelics, you can reach out to us. That can kind of bring clarity as well. Um, there's a lot of other things that aren't SSRIs. And I'm not demonizing it. There's a time and place and they can be life-saving. Uh, but definitely try a lot of these mindfulness techniques and they can really help. And breath work is always key. It might sound a little woo-woo, but the breath is always the key to everything. You'd be surprised how much that can really help your emotional stability and, and calmness. So check out Wim Hof. Check, check out, uh, I just read the book, Read by James Nestor. Definitely recommend that. Another really good person is Mark Devine, who's a former Navy SEAL, who's also an expert in the breath work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're someone listening to this podcast and you feel like you want to take the next step, how does that process work with heroic hearts. Absolutely. And there's no, uh, like I said, there's no pressure. Even if you're curious, start looking into it and you never know. We ha often have people that are, that are curious, but it's not the time or place for them, but they have the seed planted and then they'll come back in a year and two years and like, Hey, I'm ready. So just do yourself a favor, educate yourself. This is coming no matter what. And so the more education you have of the tools out there, even if you don't feel like you need them, then you might have a friend uh, who who needs them. And so for those that are interested, they can go to our website, heroicheartsproject.org. There's a veteran sign up. Uh, they just fill out that application. And then when we have retreats, uh, different psychedelics, we send out announcements, then people can sign on. It will have requirements, all that kind of stuff. It's for combat veterans at this time or veterans who have suffered, excuse me, military sexual trauma. And there's more information on the website. We're on all social media, uh, especially Instagram, Heroic Hearts Project. So if you just want information, just go to those websites, go to those resources. Uh, but if you're interested in joining us with the program, we provide financial grants, sign up to the application, and then we'll send you updates. And if someone's listening to this and they want to help support the cause of legalizing this, do they reach out to their Congress members or senators or what steps can they take? Absolutely. So in terms of support as well, if you're on that side, Heroic Hearts Project is a 501c3 nonprofit. All of our ability to help veterans comes from generous donations. Each veteran costs about 4000 to provide a grant to go to there. And at this time, we have almost 1,000 veterans on our wait list. So this is a huge problem, and we need your support, financial or, or time, if, if you can help us. If you're interested in being politically active, Heroic Hearts has also been involved with a lot of these policy measures. So you can reach out to us and figure out how you can be involved. But like you said, John, the most direct way is you can reach out to your politician. Hey, what bills are what, what bills are going on with psychedelics? I heard about this. I heard these states are doing it. What can we do? There's a uh, local decriminalized nature uh, campaigns in, in most states. 
or like I said, if you're a veteran and you just want to be an advocate, uh, every state that, that has these bills, we're always looking for veterans willing to speak up about it. So reach out to us and we can uh, sort of put you on the list and connect you to the right people. Well, Jesse, that was just some amazing information and great insight for anyone who's listening or viewing this. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I truly appreciate it and the work that you're doing as well. John, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to your audience for, for listening. And let me know if you have any questions. We're here to help and provide safe access or, or responsible access to, to all these modalities. And yeah, John, I look forward to the, the next uh, whatever event that we do. Uh, hopefully it's a little bit easier on the knees. Yes. <laughs> and shin splints. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, until next time. Big thanks to Jesse Gould and all things Jesse will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you buy any books from the guests who are on the show. It all goes to help supporting the show. Transcripts are in the show notes and videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles. Advertiser deals and discount codes are at passionstruck.com slash deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show. I'm at John R. Miles at both Twitter and Instagram, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. And if you want to know how I managed to book all these amazing guests on the show, it is because of my network. Build those relationships before you need them. Most of the guests that you hear on the show actually subscribe and contribute their ideas to it. Come join us. You'll be in smart company. You're about to hear a preview from the Passion Start podcast with one of the most prominent podcasters in the world, Kathy Heller, whose podcast, Don't Quit Your Day Job, has over 30 million downloads. I am so passionate about helping people get out of that moment when they're at a job and they're like, well, turns out it's not really fulfilling me. I guess I have the, I've checked the boxes. I've got the 401k. I've got some kind of a title. And I feel dead inside. It's like, yeah, we got to change that. Remember, we rise above by lifting others. So share the show with those you love. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with somebody else who can use that advice that we gave here today. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And we'll see you next time. Remember, live life passion struck.